So, uh, this is Theological Equipping Class, uh, as a reminder for, for all of us and for those who, uh, it, it may be your first time, uh, we do these classes every week from, uh, from 9 to about 10.15 or so, and uh, the only exceptions are we take the months of July and December off in order for our church to have kind of a, a, a rhythm of rest, so we take breaks from community groups and from classes and so forth, but otherwise... We're in here, and uh, this semester we're talking about doctrine of God. Last semester we talked about bibliology, that is, what is the Bible and hermeneutics, how do we interpret it, how do we study it. This week we're talking about the doctrine of God. And, uh, and so last week, if you were here, you know that we talked about Trinitarianism. We talked about uh, kind of how the church has articulated, how the church has communicated who God is as it relates to his essence, who he is as it relates to uh, the Godhead. And so uh, we saw these sort of three Trinitarian pillars. Uh, and so if you're here last week, this is all review. These three Trinitarian pillars, these three statements that the church has articulated uh, over the past 2,000 years to help us understand who God has revealed himself to be. And so these three statements that we saw are there is only one God. We're not polytheist. We don't worship multiple gods. There's only one God. At the same time, God has eternally existed as three distinct persons. God eternally exists as three distinct persons. It's not merely one person, but it's three distinct persons. When I say persons, I don't mean humans. All right? Jesus has taken on humanity, but uh, the Father and the Spirit have not. So when I say persons, don't think humans. So uh, there is only one God, but God has eternally existed as three distinct persons. And then the third one is each person is truly or fully God. Each person is truly or fully God. It's not like the Father is really God, and the, the Son is kind of like God Jr. or something like that, or the Spirit is kind of like like God. No, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all uh, God. And, uh, and so we saw that God is one in substance or essence and, uh, and three in persons. One in substance and three in persons. That is the proper way to think about God. And, uh, and so if uh, you weren't here last week, you want a kind of a refresher on that, let me encourage you to go back online, listen to the audio. Zach did a great job of kind of walking us through why it is that the church has landed that, in, in, in including just walking through Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture that supports each of those three pillars that we talked about. So if that's the proper way to talk about God, if that's who God is, what's the improper way to talk about God? What is the improper way to talk about God? That's what we're going to talk about uh, today. We call this the improper way to talk about God either heterodoxy or heresy. All right, now technically, uh, I, I'm, I don't care if you have a uh, kind of wide deviation uh, between your use of those individual terms, but technically, there is a difference between heterodoxy and, uh, and heresy. Heterodoxy, the opposite of orthodoxy. Heterodoxy just means some sort of false teaching. Uh, but heresy kind of has a specific technical meaning. It is something that uh, kind of departs from what the church universally has said uh, to be uh, the standard, all right? And so uh, technically, heresy is a sub sort of uh, subcategory of heterodoxy. Heterodoxy is just any false teaching. Heresy historically has been kind of known as damnable. Uh, false teaching. It's, it's false teaching that actually goes against something that the church has universally uh, decided. And so something like infant baptism, I would say, would be heterodoxy. Uh, it's not what the Bible actually teaches on the subject of baptism, uh, but it's not heresy. It's not something that is uh, damnable. It's not something that's going to be 
uh, you're going to be condemned for. It's not something that's outside the boundaries of Christianity or something like that. So that, that's heterodoxy. Heresy would be something like a denial of the Trinity, a denial of Jesus' deity and uh, humanity and so forth. So does that make sense, the distinction there? Heterodoxy is just any false teaching in general. Heresy is a particular uh, component of that that rises to the level because it is actually uh, something that the church has universally gathered around, rallied together at some sort of council, uh, and, and, and kind of crafted this creed uh, that says this is what the church believes and, uh, and no other. And uh, so we've used this uh, illustration before, but I'll, I'll use it again. Uh, when I was about five years old, uh, I was uh, at a daycare and uh, was playing tug-of-war with, uh, with this uh, with this girl, and, uh, and so we were playing tug-of-war, and we had this blanket. I was on the top of this platform that was like six feet high or so. She was at the bottom. Uh, it was kind of like a, a triangular sort of thing. She was at the bottom. I was at the top. I was pulling. She decided, let's stop the game right now, and so she let go. So I pulled, and I landed right on my head, fell down, and got a concussion, all right? That's the illustration that I'd like for us to kind of think through as we think through the issue of uh, the Trinity and so forth. What we're doing here is we're trying to hold in tension what the Bible says about God's unity and what the Bible says about God's diversity. There's a tendency in the human heart to want to exalt one of those by minimizing the other. There's a tendency to want to pull one side so hard that you actually cause damage to the other side. But what we need to do, the only way that I'm safe as I'm on top of that and I'm pulling hard on my end of the the blanket is if she is equally pulling hard on her end of the blanket. Does that make sense? And so what we're talking about as we talk about the Trinity is there's a degree of mystery here, but what we, the human heart naturally wants to do is it wants to simplify that mystery. I feel this tension between God's unity and God's diversity, and so I want to simplify that by letting go of one. I'm going to let go of his unity, or I'm going to let go of his diversity. But biblically, we don't have the option of letting go. We must hold those things, allow that tension to lead us. And, uh, and so, uh, as we've talked about before, when we think about the Trinity, there's three words that I want you to remember. There's unity, there's diversity, and there's mystery. How God can be both unified and diverse is going to be shrouded in mystery, but we can't let go of one side or the other. So again, the human heart is always going to want to kind of seek the lowest common denominator. We'll see this all the time in, uh, in theological studies. Is Jesus fully God or is Jesus fully man? Well, the answer is yes. He's both, right? And so we want to let go of that tension. Is God fully sovereign Or is mankind responsible for his choices? We want to let go of one of those sides instead of embracing the both and. And uh, and so uh, Alistair McGrath said this, that heresy is a doctrine that ultimately destroys, destabilizes, or distorts a mystery rather than preserving it. We want to get rid of the mystery. We want to figure it out. We want to watch a, we don't like at the, end of the, uh, at the end of a movie where we don't know kind of what's happened, where it's not been wrapped up for us. The same thing exists uh, in our hearts as it relates to, um, uh, to theology. Uh, and so uh, a, a heretic, technically, heresy has always been kind of, the word heresy is derived from the word of choice, all right? So don't think that just because you don't understand some of the things that we're talking about today, that you're guilty of heresy or that you're a heretic or something like that. 
Heresy is always a decided choice. You are intentionally rejecting truth. If you just got saved and you don't understand the Trinity, welcome to Christianity. No one understands the Trinity fully. That doesn't make you a heretic, right? But if you were to actually hear the truth and reject it and say, no, I do not believe that God is triune. Not only do I not understand it, but I don't believe it. I think instead that God is just like Islam would promote uh, or something like that. That is uh, an example of uh, heresy. And so uh, what we want to do today is to kind of make explicit what is implicit in our hearts. Hopefully all of us uh, in this room have already heard this doctrine before. Uh, Those of us who are believers have believed this doctrine before. What we want to do, though, is to make explicit what might only be implicit at this point in, uh, in our hearts. And so let me give you an example of this. Uh, a few years back at my previous church, I was having a really big day, uh, a really busy day, uh, about 12 or 13 years ago, and I had a cup of coffee. It had grown cold, and so I went to put it in the microwave uh, to microwave it. The problem was the mug that I was using was made out of metal, right? Now, if you would have asked me the question, can you put a metallic substance in the microwave, I would have said, no, you can't do that. But in the moment, I didn't get the connection, right? In the moment, I'm not thinking about the fact that this is metal, and so I can't put it in the microwave. In the moment, I'm just simply thinking, I have coffee. I want to get it hot, and so I put it in there. Thankfully, I had a a coworker who sarcastically, very sarcastically, gave me a hard time for the fact that I was putting the coffee uh, in a metal mug into the microwave, and so I was uh, able to stop myself before I, you know, blew up the microwave or whatever it does. Uh, whenever you microwave something that's uh, metallic. That's what we're talking about today. I, I think if you're in this room and you're a believer, I think you already believe the Trinity, all right? Just like I already believe the fact that you couldn't put metal into the microwave. But sometimes what is implicit doesn't rise to the surface, and so it affects our worship, it affects our behavior, and so forth. So what we want to do is kind of uh, put some grammar to that today. We want to kind of make explicit what is implicit, and so what we're talking about today, uh, as, we, as we think of the Trinity, is um, uh, I want to use this uh, analogy uh, of why this is important. Why is this an important sort of thing? Why are we spending an entire week on something like heresies? You know, you go down the street, you go to another church, they're not talking about heresies. Why are we talking uh, about uh, heresies? And so let me give you this illustration. I've used this illustration before. If you were at the service a couple of weeks ago, you know I like sweaters, all right? So I'm going to tell another sweater story. Uh, And uh, and so imagine that we have this this sweater. We did this exercise uh, last year. And uh, you you have this sweater, and that sweater represents everything you believe about God, okay? This sweater is an illustration. It represents absolutely everything that you believe about God. In Trinitarianism... What we believe about God in, in regards to his trinity, his triunity, is just one thread. So you have this big sweater. That's everything you believe about God. Trinitarianism is just one little uh, thread. It's such a little thread, it might seem to you. You love Jesus. What does it matter what you believe about uh, the trinity? What does it matter if we know any of th- these things about heresies and so forth? It's just this little thread. So I'm just going to pull on it a little bit. And what I want to do with this illustration today is to show you what happens when you pull on it and how, uh, in effect, the entire sweater is going to be held together by this uh, little thread. So imagine, if you will, your whole belief about God is a sweater and this one little 
thread is Trinitarianism. And you think, it's such a little thread, I just want to pull it out because it's bothering me. And so you begin uh, to pull on it, in particular by not holding fast to the, to the idea that Jesus is co-eternal, that Jesus is co-equal, that Jesus is fully or truly God. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to pull that thread a little bit, and we're going to imagine for a second that Jesus is not co-eternal, co-equal, that he's not fully or truly God. So first thing that happens, the first thing we begin to notice as we pull this thread is that it's really hard for us to then understand how he, who's just a creature at this point, he's not fully God, he's a created being, how could he fully bear the wrath of God against our sins? If he's just a creature, how is he going to really provide atonement uh, for us and for our sins? And then you pull a little bit more and you see if Jesus is not really truly or fully God, uh, then, then we begin to doubt. We begin to doubt that he really could provide salvation for us. We certainly can't ground our hope for salvation in grace alone through faith alone, which is why if you look at most of the cults and so forth, they are both non-Trinitarian and they also compromise on justification by faith. There's an element of justification by works because no longer do you have God himself atoning for your sins. And if Jesus is not infinite God, should we pray to him? Should we pray to him or worship him? If he's not God, we shouldn't pray to him or worship him. And, uh, and so, um, if uh, again, we pull on it a little bit more. If, Jesus, if Christ is just a created being, then this teaching begins to kind of attribute salvation to a creature rather than the creator, which is the essence of idolatry and sin according to Romans chapter one. And then furthermore, you begin to see that the independence and personal nature of God begin to unravel because God is not before eternity itself uh, or before uh, creation itself, God is not eternally loving because there's no one for him to love. There's no interpersonal relationships for him. And you begin to get this idea of a God who needs us, who needed to create us in order for him to express or to experience or to extend love to others. So when you pull on this sweater, you begin to see not only is this one little thread affected, but the entire sweater begins to unravel. So the uh, thread is actually really important. That's why we're spending two weeks talking about the pro, uh, the orthodox position of Trinitarianism, and the con, uh, the heterodox or the heretical understanding of uh, Trinitarianism. So let's talk a little bit about uh, heresy as it relates to uh, church history. As early as the beginning of the, uh, the church, you will note throughout the scriptures, you will note that there is this tendency towards false teaching. In the first century, what we see over and over and over and over again is that the apostles are uh, confronting, in particular, uh, this view called uh, Judaizing. Uh, the opponents are these people who are called Judaizers. What was the big teaching of Ju- uh, Judaizers? Yeah, you must be circumcised, right? You must obey the Mosaic law. Yes, you have salvation uh, in Jesus, but in order to really, really get it, in order to really, really be faithful, in order to really, really experience justification, you have to not only believe, you have to take on all of this burden of the Mosaic law. So in the first century, you have uh, the churches dealing with this. Through the second and third century, you begin to uh, see this false teaching arise that's known as Gnosticism. At some point, we'll talk about Gnosticism and kind of flesh that out 
no pun intended, but Gnosticism is this uh, dualistic view that, uh, Zach's giving me a thumbs up for my pun, uh, if you don't get it, uh, you will in a second. Gnosticism is this view that says that anything that is immaterial is good, whatever is material is bad. Anything that is spirit is good, whatever is flesh, whatever is body is bad. This stuff is evil, according to that. It's kind of uh, uh, based on a Platonic thought, uh, uh, the philosopher Plato and, and Greek uh, dualism and so forth. And so the second and third centuries were kind of swamped with this. If you've ever uh, read the Da Vinci Code and some of those sorts of things, you've ever heard of these quote-unquote Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Peter, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, these are Gnostic Gospels. They're not written by Peter himself. They're written hundreds, uh, 100, 150, 200 years later. But this is the second and third century that the church is uh, really uh, trying to wrestle with, uh, with this sort of idea. Is God opposed to creation? And, uh, and so the church is wrestling with this the second and third centuries. Let's skip ahead to the fifth century. In the fifth century, uh, we begin to have a couple of uh, fights within the church. We have a fight over Christology. We'll talk about uh, in a couple of months as we talk about uh, Christological heresies and how the church has kind of uh, articulated our doctrine of the hypostatic union, that's the deity and humanity of Christ. But we also have soteriological uh, heresies. Soteriological is a word, a fancy word that means the doctrine of salvation. And, uh, and so we have uh, things like Augustine versus Pelagius. And so we talked about that uh, before. If you were here, then you would know you should boo whenever we say Pelagius. He was an early church uh, heretic who, uh, who taught that man was uh, basically morally neutral. He wasn't uh, essentially, uh, he denied the, the doctrine of original sin. And so man is not essentially uh, broken and bent towards sin. He's kind of born into this state of a blank slate, and because of his environment, he inclines toward uh, sin. So uh, that's the fifth century. But going back to the fourth century, this is when you really get the heart of the debate over Trinitarianism is in the, uh, the fourth century. And so you have this kind of new bad guy in town, and his name is Arius, all right? So he's a, another guy that you can boo whenever you hear uh, his name. And he believed that Jesus was not uh, e, uh, eternally divine, but he was a created being. He was the highest, the, the first of all created beings, certainly, but he himself is uh, not uh, divine. Sort of his slogan was, uh, there was a time before the sun, there was a time before the sun, S-O-N, all right? There, or there was a time when the sun was not. In other words, uh, somewhere, if you go back far enough, you have a point in which Jesus was created. He was opposed by a guy named uh, Athanasius. A guy named Athanasius was kind of the, the big opponent of him, and this schism threatened the entire empire. And so the, the emperor at the time, his name was Constantine, he called this ecumenical council together at a place called Nicaea uh, to really wrestle through this. So is Athanasius' view the biblical view, or is Arius' view the biblical view, is what they're uh, debating there at Nicaea. Now, if you have studied uh, the Council of Nicaea on the internet, I would say to you, you probably need a better source uh, than that. You will read things uh, like this, that uh, Nicaea is where the canon of Scripture was created. That's not what happened there. Uh, it's where uh, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, is where he punched a heretic in the face. Didn't happen there. Santa Claus 
that punched somebody in the face. It's not some grand conspiracy also by the Emperor Constantine. That's another thing you'll read on the internet. Uh, Really, they got together for one simple reason. They wanted to wrestle with this difference of view between Arius, who taught that Jesus was created, and Athanasius, who said, no, Jesus himself is truly God. All right, this was what the church was wrestling through. They wanted to kind of set boundaries, if you will, boundaries for our belief, all right? Boundaries don't articulate exactly what we believe, but they show us how far is too far for us to believe. Now, we think uh, naturally, as uh, 21st century Americans, we think naturally of boundaries as being these uh, restricting things, these limiting things. We don't think of boundaries as being good things. You think of boundaries as being a good thing, though, if you're a parent and you have a child and you're at the Grand Canyon or something like that, and there's a fence or a railing or something like that, at that point, you th- you're very grateful for boundaries. That's how our hearts should be. When I was a kid and you had a trampoline, you didn't have those nets on the side, which meant either you stayed in the center or you went to the hospital, right? Those are your only two options because you were either gonna dan- jump right in the center or you were gonna jump off of it and break your arm or something like that. In effect, what those creeds are, are they like those nets that they have on modern trampolines today which frees you to be able to jump there in the, the, the center without worrying, I'm going to fall off into the hedges or whatever it might be uh, and end up with something even worse than a broken arm. So the, uh, the church gathered together at Nicaea to create these boundaries, to wrestle through the issue. This is what Arius is teaching. This is what Athanasius is teaching. Is Jesus divine or is Jesus a created being? And then as a consequence of that also, what do we think of the Spirit? And, uh, and so this is what they're doing there at, uh, at Nicaea. And so they gather together and they come up with a statement that basically boils down to those three Trinitarian pillars that we talked about last week. There's only one God. He has eternally existed as three distinct persons and each person is fully or truly God. They didn't create the doctrine of Trinity that's not what they're doing there. They're articulating something that's already implicit. They're, they're making explicit what is implicit. They're basically putting grammar to three centuries of the church's groanings. The churches had felt this. Uh, the, the church had wrestled with this. But they're putting grammar to it. They're establishing those boundaries for us. And so uh, I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning talking about some of the heresies that, uh, that this boundary is going to show us as being outside. This is outside the bounds of us for, as, uh, as believers. And so we want to talk about, I think I have seven of them. But we'll start with, uh, with Arianism uh, itself. So again, Arius was a priest. He was a priest in uh, Alexandria. And Arius taught that uh, Jesus the Son was at one point created by God the Father. And, uh, and that before that time, the Son did not exist, nor did the Holy Spirit, although that wasn't his focus, but, uh, but only the Father. So the Father is really, truly God, and the Son and the Spirit uh, are kind of emanations from him, but they're not uh, themselves God in the way that the Father uh, is God. And he kind of came uh, out of this idea of there was a time uh, when the Son was not. We talked about that again. So denying the eternality of the Son and, uh, and one of the big arguments for him was on the basis of, in the New Testament, you read all of these statements about Jesus being the wisdom of God, Jesus who is for us righteousness and wisdom and so forth. And then Arius is reading in Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 8, 
uh, it says uh, that uh, the Lord possessed. But if you're reading in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it actually says created. So talking of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8, it says the Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. And so Arius hears this. He puts this statement that wisdom was created with uh, the New Testament teaching that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And he says, see, there's an example there that Jesus is created. So for him, the Son is a heavenly being who existed before the rest of creation. The rest of creation came into being through Jesus, but Jesus himself was a created being that was created before everything else. Uh, You could even say that he's like the Father in some sense. He's like the Father or he's similar to the Father in his nature, but we can't say that he's of the same nature as the Father, all right? And so this led to this statement. I'll read uh, from, obviously, a translation of the Nicene Creed. Uh, We believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, being of one substance with the Father, not a similar substance with the Father. So they use this word homoousia. We talked about it a little bit last week, homoousia. All right, and so uh, in this, they rejected the word that Arius would put forth, which is homoousia. Homoousia means a similar substance. He's similar to the Father, but not of the same substance as the Father. And so you really see that the church is experiencing this huge division in, uh, in the fourth century over one letter. The difference between homoousia uh, and homoousia is just literally one letter, an iota in, uh, in Greek. And yet, the entire doctrine of the Trinity hangs on this. Is Jesus like the Father? Is he similar to the Father? Is he similar to God? He is similar to the Father, but he is God himself. He's not like God. He is God. You can see how a single letter can almost split the empire. You want to see another example of how a single letter, single letter could be really important? If I wrote that my name is Mr. Ashley versus if I wrote my name is Ms. Ashley. Those have very different meanings, right? It's just one letter, and yet it changes completely who you understand me to be. And, uh, and so one letter is really important. We see this in the Bible uh, itself. There is an, an example in Galatians chapter 3 where Paul is making an argument, and his entire argument is predicated on the fact that one word in the ancient Hebrew is singular and not plural. He's basing his entire theological argument on the basis of this fact that one word in the Hebrew is singular and not plural. In other words, that God's promises aren't made to just everyone who is biologically related to Abraham. God's promises are made to the singular seed of Abraham, that is Jesus himself. And, uh, and so you see the importance of one letter. So it's not like they're just arguing about how many angels can fit on the head of a pen or some of those sort of things. These are not just dry, dull, academic, intellectual exercises. For the church, this is a very essential sort of thing the same way that this would be a very essential sort of thing for you to understand, the difference between manhood and womanhood, the difference between God, uh, Jesus being like God, and Jesus himself being God. And so this is the first heresy, Arianism. Which pillar would you say that this denies? There's only one God. Uh, God has eternally existed as three persons. Each person is truly God. 
Two and three. Yeah, you could get two and three. Three is the the one that most people think of, but two as well, Uh, especially when you you throw in the word eternally, that he has eternally existed as uh, three uh, persons, all right? So modern examples of Arianism, modern examples of Arianism, uh, the majority of cults, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so forth, they would all be uh, examples of uh, Arianism in regards to their theology. Second example is called modalism, also called Sabellianism, after a guy named Sibelius, who lived in the third centuries. It's also called modalistic monarchianism or patripassianism. Anybody know what patripassianism means? What does patra mean? Like father. What does a passion sound like? Passionism. Passion. Feeling, all right? Suffering is what it it means uh, historically. And so uh, it's the idea that the father suffered, not the son who suffered on the cross. Uh, And so modalism is this idea that that God is sometimes the father, sometimes the son, sometimes the Holy Spirit. They're different modes. They're different manifestations, uh, similar to the way that, uh, that I, depending upon the particular hat I'm wearing at that time, I might be in my father mode, I might uh, be in my husband mode, I might be in my pastor mode, I might be in a son mode or a friend mode or whatever it is. These are different uh, expressions of who I am. That's what modalism is. There, there is no uh, distinction of persons between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, they are instead just three different ways of understanding this one God. Uh, if you ever have read the, the book of the shack, uh, I haven't seen the movie, but, uh, but if you've read the book... Uh, that is kind of that same sort of idea, that they're just different expressions, they're different modes or manifestations. And so the church has kind of responded to this throughout the years and saying, okay, if this is the case, if there are no distinctions between the persons, if, if Jesus essentially is the Father and is the Spirit and so forth, who's Jesus praying to when Jesus is praying? And who baptizes Jesus? It says uh, there in the baptism that the, the, the voice from heaven speaks and, uh, and that the Holy Spirit lights on Jesus and so forth. What's going on uh, there? And how does the Father truly love the Son? What does that mean? And so it begins to deny the heart of the atonement. How does Jesus bear the wrath of the Father if there's no distinction to be made between those two? So historically, this sounds more like kind of uh, divine schizophrenia or something like that. The, the analogy I think of, the illustration I think of is, if you've ever seen uh, Terminator 2, T2, the liquid Terminator, and, uh, and how just kind of in different uh, contexts, he takes on different faces, all right? And so he can kind of morph, he can shape uh, himself to take on these different expressions. There's a, there's a scene at the very end where he is, uh, he's dying, and he begins to just take on whatever face he thinks can possibly help him to, to survive. That's kind of the image of uh, modalism, that uh, sometimes he appears as a father, sometimes he appears as the son, sometimes he appears as the spirit, but he is not eternally three distinct uh, persons. So which pillar would that deny? Which of those Trinitarian pillars would that deny? Somebody mumbled something. I'm sure it's correct. <laughs> Two, denies that there are uh, eternally three distinct persons. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So examples of this. Uh, most sort of united Pentecostal churches uh, if you've ever heard of oneness, Pentecostalism, oneness, Pentecostalism, uh, lots of super charismatic churches, 
and so forth. So if you go to a, uh, one of these sorts of churches, they're not going to say, hey, by the way, we teach this ancient heresy called modalism. That's not what they're going to say. But they are going to have language that's very clearly not, we believe that God has eternally existed as three distinct persons. Instead, they're going to say something like, God uh, exists and he manifests himself in three different modes or something uh, like that. It's going to be a lot less clear uh, and, uh, and overt as a, uh, a cult or something like that uh, with Arianism. Let's talk about a third heresy that, the, uh, that would be outside the, the boundaries that uh, Nicaea created for us. It's called subordinationism. Subordinationism. So Arianism held that the Son was created and not divine. Subordinationism holds that the Son uh, was eternal, that he's not created, um, uh, and, uh, and he is divine, but he's still not equal to the Father in his being or his uh, attributes. The Son is inferior or uh, subordinate in being to the Father. Right? The Son is inferior or subordinate in being to the Father. We talked a little bit last week about the difference between ontological and functional subordination. Anybody remember what ontological means? It's a, it's a big word. Ontos is a Greek word that means being or essence, all right? So ontological is something that's related to your essence, something that's related to your, uh, your being, something that's not peripheral, something that is central to who you are, your identity, and so forth. Functional is something that relates to your function, all right? So we see throughout the Bible that the Son is functionally subordinate to, to uh, the Son is functionally subordinate to his Father. He'll say things like, I always do what the Father tells me to do. I only do the works of my Father. I, I do the works of the one who sent me, and those sorts of things. That's different from ontological uh, subordination, which is the idea that the Son is uh, actually in his being, in his essence. He is less than, he is inferior uh, to uh, the Father. Uh, so, uh, what we're talking about here is ontological subordination. Um, and so which pillar would this deny? Three, yeah, that, that uh, each person is fully or truly God. The Son is somehow less God than the Father. Right? Whatever it means to be God, uh, the Son is kind of less than that. All right? And so he is God-like. Uh, he is, you could even say that he's God uh, but, uh, but whatever you mean by that is different from how you say that the Father is God. You think the Father, is, he's really God. That's how a lot of people kind of think uh, as they read back in the Old Testament. They, think, uh, they read the Old Testament and they see Yahweh there and they think that's the Father. In the New Testament, we see kind of the Son and the Spirit. Well, no, when the Old Testament talks about Yahweh, the vast majority of times it's talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Occasionally it will use that to refer to one person of the Trinity. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the Son is not somehow less God than the Father. Whatever the Father is as it relates to Godness, the Son is as well. So uh, modern examples of this, uh, some of the cults, they kind of overlaps with the idea of Arianism. There was a, a, a pastor that was uh, defrocked um, uh, not too long ago for being willing to say that Jesus was the Son of God, but he wouldn't say that Jesus was God. All right, and so those are some examples here. Uh, uh, the next example, adoptionism. Adoptionism, and that's the idea that Jesus kind of lived as an ordinary man until his baptism. He lived as an ordinary man until his baptism. He was just fully human, truly human, whatever it, it, it meant. He was not God in any sense. He was just a good man. Then he gets baptized, and at his baptism, uh, God adopts Jesus as his son and confers on him 
some of the attributes of divinity, kind of confers on him supernatural powers. Basically think Superman in reverse, all right? So it's kind of Kent Clark or something like that. Superman in, uh, in diverse. He's really from this planet. He's really from this planet, but he's adopted by a father from another, and then he's granted powers, right? That's kind of the idea of adoptionism. And uh, so adoptionists would not hold that Christ existed before he was born as a man. Uh, therefore, they would not think of Christ as eternal, nor would they think him, uh, of him as the exalted supernatural being uh, created by God that the Arians uh, held him to be. Uh, even after Jesus' adoption as the Son of God, they would not think of him as being divine in uh, nature, but only as an exalted man whom uh, God called his son in a unique sense. And, uh, and so they would really deny, uh, whereas subordinationism would say he's, he's, he's God, but he's a lesser form of God, and Arianism would say he's a created being, but the highest created being. Uh, adoptionism says that he is not God, and then uh, he has kind of conferred these supernatural powers and abilities uh, and so forth. So which pillar would adoptionism deny? Yeah, two and three, right? That he eternally exists as three persons and that each is fully God. Modern examples of this would be anybody who kind of believes that, uh, that Jesus is kind of a great teacher or a great man or something like that, but kind of that's as far as they're willing uh, to go. Unitarianism, if you ever know anybody who goes to a Unitarian church, that's kind of uh, where they would uh, potentially fit uh, anything that believes that the, the Son is not really divine, the Son is not really uh, God. The next one, partialism. Partialism. <clears throat> That's the view that each member of the Trinity is like, uh, is a part of God, and they kind of only become fully God whenever they're kind of put together, like Captain Planet or something like that. And, uh, and so e- each person is a part of God, uh, but they're not themselves fully God. And so they, they become God, they become Yahweh or whatever, whenever you combine the powers of the Father, the Son, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so, which pillar would be denied there? Yeah, each person is fully or truly God, all right? Uh, in, their, in their view, each person is not. Each person is a part, a third of God. And so, uh, Jesus is a third of God, Father is a third of God, or something like that. There's not really any modern examples I could think of of this. Uh, it's more something that you might implicitly or accidentally fall into. That's just a, a danger in our thinking as we, uh, as we kind of stress diversity and kind of uh, let go of unity or vice versa. And so it's not, there's not that there is a particular person who has taught this or a particular cult or denomination or whatever it might be that is actually held to this. It's just where our minds can naturally go. If we're not careful, when we think of Trinitarianism, this is a category that we can fall into. We can think of uh, God as being composed of these three distinct parts, n- uh, none of them being uh, fully God. Two more, tritheism, which is easy. It's just three gods, just a particular form of uh, polytheism, and, uh, and so won't spend a whole lot of time on that. I think the Bible's pretty clear on uh, polytheism. And uh, so which pillar would be denied there? Yeah, there is only one God. Modern examples of this, uh, maybe Mormons, you could uh, fit, you could see some of the cults and so forth will fit in multiple categories. They hold that there is a council of three distinct deities, perfectly one in purpose, unity, and mission, but nevertheless separate and distinct uh, beings. And, uh, and so uh, potentially Mormons would fit in there. You could potentially put Hinduism in there. 
All right, and so Hinduism uh, with their sort of three major gods, um, and so you have Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and, uh, and so any other polytheistic re- religion would be on that same sort of end of the spectrum. Uh, they might not be actually tritheists, but they're polytheists uh, and so forth. So last one, which uh, might be interesting that it's on here, but uh, nonetheless I think it is a, uh, a Trinitarian heresy, and that's Islam. Right, Islam, and so uh, you might know this, but uh, Muhammad actually was on uh, lived in the midst of trade routes, and so he actually experienced uh, historically he experienced a lot of uh, overlap and interaction uh, with uh, with Christian traders and, and so forth, people who are trading, not traders, as in uh, like Benedict Arnold or something like that, uh, Christian traders, and uh, and so on the this uh, trade routes, and so he picked up little hints and so forth. Uh, along the way before he had his demonic encounter or whatever it might be uh, in the cave. And, uh, and so uh, what is Islam? But basically just at, if we saw that, that polytheism is really embracing the idea of diversity and letting go of unity, uh, then what Islam is is the exact opposite end of the spectrum. It's embracing unity and letting go of diversity. Uh, and, uh, and so that is the plank, the pillar uh, the platform of Islam is the idea that God is one, and in no sense is he uh, to be thought of as uh, triune. So which pillar would be denied there? Yeah, that God eternally exists as three persons, or that each person uh, was fully God. So the second and, uh, and third. So as you can see, what's happening here, all of these things, again, outside of the boundaries uh, of our thought. Don't worry if you kind of thought, man, partialism is kind of how I thought of God. Again, heresy is not something that you accidentally stumble into. You don't wake up one day and your mind's kind of foggy and you're like, oh, I'm a heretic, right? Heresy is something that you decide to do. It's something that you, you're actually rejecting. You hear all of these sort of arguments and you go, no, I think that God is one and he is not three in any sense, uh, something like uh, that. And so each heresy is going to be, again, this reduction, a desire to kind of smooth out the tension that we feel when it relates to how is God unified, how is God uh, diverse by letting go of one side or uh, the other. And so why should we care? Again, all of the reasons we articulated earlier as it relates to pulling that thread, there's more at stake in our understanding of who God is than just some sort of academic exercise. You see, uh, Trinitarianism uh, is kind of an inroad for us to understand our salvation, our prayer life, our worship, all of these sorts of things, our idea of community, our idea of whether or not God actually needs us, uh, idolatry, whether we're worshiping a created being, all of these sorts of things are wrapped up in our understanding of the Trinity. So the Trinity matters. The Trinity matters because God matters. And God is Trinitarian, and so we want to know God rightly. And all of these views that we've talked about cheapen God's revelation. It's kind of like if I were to show you a picture of my wife, and I somehow had cut her head off in that, and I show you this picture, am I doing justice to who Casey is? Absolutely not. Why? I've left out an essential part of who she is. And so Trinitarianism is not some sort of peripheral thing. It's at the very center, the very heart of who God is. I want to spend the last couple of minutes talking about analogies and give you a few moments to uh, do a little uh, class exercise. So analogies. The Bible is going to use analogies all the time as it relates to 
God. God's going to be compared to a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is going to be compared to a rock. God is going to be compared to all kinds of things throughout Scripture. Jesus is going to be compared to a vine and a door and all of these sorts of things. So the Bible uses analogies all the time for God. But what's interesting is we never see the Bible use an analogy for the Trinity. It never uses an analogy for the Trinity. All analogies have shortcomings. Every single analogy has a shortcoming to some extent, not just in theology, but in every single area. Anytime you use an analogy, it's imperfect. All right? A perfect analogy, the only thing that is a perfect analogy is the thing itself. All right? If you're saying that something is exactly, in no way is it distinct from the thing that I am uh, relating it to, then the only thing that relates to that is uh, the same. Think of uh, analogies in a sense as being like twins. Some analogies are pretty bad. They don't really look like it, and so they might be fraternal twins or something like that. Some look really, really close. They're identical twins, right? Some of them are so bad, they're kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito in that movie, uh, Twins. And, uh, and so these the analogies that we're going to talk to about here in a second, I think are more like that third category. Uh, they're not even close enough for us to really worry about them and use them and so forth because uh, I think that they are more unhelpful, uh, more confusing than they are clarifying. The purpose of an analogy should be to make things illustrated more clearly. And, uh, and what each of these analogies that we're about to talk about actually do, I think, is make it less clear. And, uh, and so, uh, on your sheet, if you grabbed a handout, uh, you should have five different analogies of the Trinity. And uh, so what I want you to do is to get with uh, one, two, maybe three other people and, uh, and spend the next uh, six or seven minutes walking through those five analogies asking these questions. Which heresy would each of these analogies best represent and which Trinitarian pillar is denied by this analogy? Which heresy is represented and which Trinitarian pillar is, uh, is denied? So take the next few minutes and do that, and then we'll come back, and then we'll have some Q&A. All right, let's uh, go over these real quickly, and then we'll transition to uh, Q&A. And uh, so, first one, uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit are like sun, heat, and uh, light, which, uh, which heresy or heresies would you think that would fit under? Yeah, potential Arianism. You could also maybe go with uh, subordinationism or something like that. Um, and uh, which pillar is denied? Which pillar is denied? Yeah. Two and uh, and three, all right, and uh, and so, but in particular, three that each person is fully God, all right, and so uh, the same way that you would say heat and light are not fully sun, they are something distinct from the sun. They're emanations from uh, the sun. Okay, second one, uh, we get to some more uh, popular ones. The Trinity is like an egg, which has shell, yolk, and uh, the egg white, which is also called glare, by the way. It's an official glare. So, uh, which one is that? Partialism, right, uh, denies uh, that each one is fully or truly God. Everyone got that one? Uh, I think was uh, one of the uh, probably easier ones if you're thinking about it. Uh, the glare itself is not the full egg. 
the, uh, the yolk itself is not the, uh, the full egg. They're just parts of the egg. Next one, the trinity is like water, which depending on the temperature or whatever can be water, ice, or steam. What heresy is that? Modalism, right? It just appears in different forms at different times. And what denial is that? Two denies that eternally ex- uh, exists as three distinct persons. Yeah. Next one, the trinity is like a shamrock with each leaf representing part of the whole clover. Heresy. Partialism. There's a... Uh, there's a uh, a YouTube video called uh, Lutheran Satire, and uh, it's this guy, and he does an entire thing on Trinitarian heresies, and so one of it is, uh, is on partialism. That's partialism, Patrick. Uh, so partialism denies what? Which pillar does it deny? The third, that each is fully or truly God, all right? So uh, the part of a, each little leaf of a shamrock is not the full clover, and then lastly, the Trinity is a man who is a husband, father, and son. This is a give me because I use this example. For which one? Modalism, all right? Denies that there are eternally, uh, that, that God eternally exists as three distinct persons. My, my point in doing this is not to shame you if you've ever used these analogies. Again, all analogies are imperfect. You might have used one of these. I think you can use one of these and then teach around it, but you're going to have to teach around it so much that I just, I don't know that using it in the first place is going to be all that, uh, that helpful. Uh, my, my point is also not, so if someone begins to do it like that, that you scream, you're a heretic. And uh, it, you, know, you, you cry Aryan and you run out of the room or something like that. That's not the point either. The point is so that you are just aware, generally, the church has wrestled through this issue, has settled the issue, has created some boundaries. We not, might not know exactly all of the language possible to express who God is, but at least we have these boundaries that we can know. He's not like this. He's not like these sort of things uh, outside of this. So I hope that's helpful uh, for you.